we have been moving through 1 Samuel, and uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we looked at uh, what life is like when God is on the throne, and how he can direct and guide us and help us to uh, live a life that uh, is full, uh, live a life that's all that it's meant to be, all that it's designed to be. Then last week, chapter 2, first part of it, we looked at Hannah's song, and we see uh, the character, the nature of uh, the God who sits on the throne. Who is he? What's he like? And, and those first two lessons are, are, are very important for where we are today, because today we're going to look at how evil can take the throne of our lives, how, how sometimes we can let evil wickedness take control of who we are, what we do, what we pursue, what our emphases are, what our priorities are. And that really comes down to the issue of, of temptation in many ways. And the issue of temptation doesn't really begin with the object of temptation. It doesn't really begin with whatever it is that, that seduces you or whatever it is that, that attracts you or whatever it is that, that uh, uh, is a struggle for you. That's not really where temptation begins. Temptation begins when we doubt God's goodness and we distort God's word. That's where temptation begins. You look back at the very first temptation in, in Genesis chapter 3 there. The, the, how does the whole discussion start? How does the conversation start? It starts by questioning doubt God's goodness. Does he really want the best for you? Or is he telling you not to eat that because what? Then you might be like him and, oh, he doesn't want that. And then what? You have the distortion of his word. By the woman, where she says, shall not eat nor touch, which is what? It's, it's what? It's creating a God who is all about the constraints instead of the freedom that he has presented himself with. And that's really where every single sin that we commit begins. Before the temptation is even present, if we don't fully accept and understand God's goodness and God's truthfulness, then we're going to be much more susceptible to falling into sin. And so those, those lessons from chapters 1 and 2 are, are essential to our discussion today as we look at uh, God's judgment on the family of Eli, uh, who was uh, a priest. And we're going to see here today a, a lifestyle that's characterized by repeated sin. Some of us struggle with that as believers. Not necessarily that our lives are just engulfed in sin, but, but sometimes we have a, a sin, a particular sin that has a grip on us that we just really struggle with over and over again. And we, we go to the Lord, we ask God to forgive us, we ask God to, to remove that from us, we ask God to strengthen us in the midst of it, we ask God for you know whatever uh, protections from it. And we, we deal with it for a while, and, and things seem to be pretty good for a while, and then we slip back into that same sin. And we get frustrated. And we get overwhelmed. We get worried. How do we deal with that? Well, hopefully today, as we look at this text, we'll, we'll gain some insight into that journey. Now, the passage starts really in verse 11. Elkanah went home to Ramah. But the boy served the Lord 
in the presence of the priest, Eli. And the writer there is, is, is setting up the comparison. He's setting up the, 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 the lens through which we're supposed to read the rest of the story. That Eli and his sons are in stark contrast to Samuel and his calling and his righteousness. And we're going to see that there is indeed a, a very stark distinction here. Continuing on with verse 12. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, kettle, cauldron, or cooking pot. Then the priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way that they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast, because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, The fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself, the servant would reply, No, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord, because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Samuel served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when he was uh, when she sent when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she has given to the Lord. Then they would go home. The Lord paid attention to Hannah's need, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why are you doing these things? I have heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father, since the Lord intended to kill them. By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. The man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your forefathers' family when they were in Egypt and belonged to the Pharaoh's palace? Out of all the tribes of Israel, I chose your house to be my priest to offer sacrifices on the altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I, I gave your forefathers, family, all the Israelite fire offerings. When they do, all, why then do all of you despise my sacrifice and offering that I have required at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of the offering of my people Israel. Therefore, this is the de declaration of the Lord. God of Israel, I did say that your family and your forefathers' family would walk before me forever, but now this is the Lord's declaration. No longer. For those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disgraced. Look, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefathers' house so that none of your in your family will reach old age. You will see distress in the place of worship in spite of all that is good in Israel. And no one in your family will ever reach old age. Any man from your family I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness to you. 
all your descendants will die violently. This will be the sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Both of them will die on the same day. Then I will raise up a father, faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and my mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty of him, and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. Anyone who is left in your family will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. He will say, please appoint me to some priestly office so I can have a piece of bread to eat. The passage is lengthy, but it is an important reflection upon the nature of sin and the, and the role that it has taken, in, not just in the life of Eli's sons, which is evident, but also in the life of Eli himself. The, the passage here reflects how evil has taken throne in this family life, and it reflects some of the things that, that led to that. And so the first thing we see about evil taking the throne is that it takes the throne when we fail to identify true wickedness. If you recall, in our previous uh, messages, we, we saw Hannah at the tabernacle there, praying to God, begging God to give her a child. Very earnest prayer, very honest prayer, very heartfelt prayer. And what, what did Eli do in the midst of that prayer? Do you all remember? He thought she was drunk. He chastised her. And the words are actually stronger in the Hebrew than they come across in the English. He, he, uh, he outright rebuked her in the strongest of terms, referring to her as a wicked woman. And yet here his sons are committing this crime, a couple crimes. The first crime that they're described as doing is, is taking the fat portion. Now, why is that a crime? Because that belonged to God. In the offering and the sacrifice, you were to give the best portions of the meat, fatty portions of the meat to God. That was Once that was burned off, once that was taken care of, then the priest was able to get the rest, and that's how he supported himself, how he supported his family. But they were what? They were taking that portion. Not only were they taking it, they were taking it by force. You're going to give it to us. And, and when, a, when a person tried to speak up and say, no, this belongs to God, they, they would say, we will take it by force. But then secondly, what were they doing? They were sleeping with, having sexual relations with, the women who served at the entrance to the temple. Now, these are two things that are taking place in uh, the tabernacle that Eli, as the high priest, should have easily recognized going on should have intervened with, should have put a stop to. And yet the text says what? He, he had done nothing. The first word you have of him interacting, engaging his, his sons on this issue, is because what I have heard from others what you're doing. This is a man who's shirking his responsibility. And because he's shirking his responsibility, because he's not himself standing up in righteousness, not himself carrying forth uh, the expectations of what the role of the high priest is. He can't recognize wickedness when it's present. And he can't recognize faithfulness when it's present either. He has the two mixed up. He has lost sight of what true wickedness is. 
And so often in our lives, when, when we uh, fall into sin, repeated sin, it's because we have made priorities that raise a certain behavior to a level of acceptability because we argue that the ends justify the means. Now, I know this is wrong, but the outcome is what I desire. We as a, as a culture have slipped into it. We as a, a, as a, a church universal, not just this church, but a church universal have slipped into it. Where as long as we get the end result that we desire, as long as we get the end result that we were seeking, it really doesn't matter how we got there. It really doesn't matter who we supported or, or what words we stood behind or what lies or what contemptible actions we defended because we got the end result we wanted. And in Christ's ethic, in Christ's morality, the ends never justify the means. We are called to stand with clarity, with integrity, with conviction. And when we fail to do that, we then begin to fail to recognize the true nature of wickedness around us. And we highlight things or ignore things or push aside things that we know are wrong while attacking things that sometimes are righteous, but because they're proposed or argued for or uh, put forward by somebody who's on the opposite political leaning of us or different denominational background than us or just somebody that we don't really like at all. We push those down. We ignore those truths. And when that happens, evil begins to take hold. The second way that evil takes throat is when we fail to face wickedness with actual consequences. You see Eli's exchange with his sons here. He says they're in uh, verses 22 and following. What's going on? I hear from everyone the bad things you're doing. You're sinning against God, though, so there's really nothing I can do about it. The, the, the sense you get here is, is that that's it. He's the high priest. At the very least, you would think he would say, you can't function as a priest anymore in this tavern the very least. You have been stripped of your responsibility. You have been stripped of your role, of your, your, your place, your position. He has that power. He doesn't even speak a, word, a strong word of chastisement to them. He just says, this is bad. It's almost like the parent that you see that likes to count you know, and, and there's nothing wrong if at the end of that count you actually do something. But so many times we see parents counting. I'm going to count to three. If I get to three, you're in trouble. You get to three and I'm warning you. There's not any actual consequences present. There's not any actual um, correction taking place because the child learns what? My parents good at counting. <laughs> okay. That's what they learn. 
And they don't begin to understand that wrong actions should have consequences. That's what's going on here. Eli is saying, oh, you guys are doing bad things. You guys are doing bad things. Wish you would stop doing those bad things. But all the power and authority that he has to actually intervene, he's ignoring. He's pushing it aside. And when we don't have consequences, when we don't have accountability, sin is going to take hold. You look at Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, according to Scripture. And yet, his whole kingship is what? It's, it starts out great and just disintegrates over time. Why? Well, I'm convinced the reason for that is because Solomon does not have a prophet in his court. David had three. Solomon didn't have a single prophet in his court. In chapter 4 of 1 Kings, when it's listing the officials in Solomon's court, no prophet listed there. He didn't have anybody come to him and say, King, you've gone the wrong direction. You've made the wrong choice. You need to redirect your life. It's not until the very end of his reign that a prophet shows up to say, God's going to give your kingdom into somebody else's hands. Without accountability, it doesn't matter how wise we are, how great we are, how wonderful we are. We will succumb to sin because our natural tendencies, our, 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 our way of thinking, our way of operating is all driven by reward consequence. And if there's no consequence present, then we'll see the sinful actions as rewards. Things that we can do without punishment. And we'll pursue them all the more. So we need to have actual consequences. Evil takes the throne, thirdly, when we fail to respond to God's clear warnings. The prophet comes in, identifies the sins, Describes the punishment, and there's no response. Eli doesn't say a word. Now, again, you have to understand the nature of prophecy. Sometimes we, we, we characterize prophecy through the, through the lens of, you know, kind of how Hollywood produces it or something, that, that it's, a, it's a set end. It's a set result that can't be changed, can't be altered. That we're like, oh, well, I guess it, that's just the way it is, and a fatalism sets in. That's not biblical prophecy. That's not how biblical uh, realities function. Jeremiah chapter 18 makes this very clear. There in the passage, God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I want you to go down to the potter's house. And so he goes, he says, Jeremiah, I want you to tell me what you see. And he, he watches as the potter is, is making this, this pot out of the clay. And a fault, a flaw, appears in the vessel, and the potter goes, crushes the vessel, starts all over. And God says, that's how Israel is to me. That's how people are to me. I'm the sovereign one. I mold, I shape. I can crush if I have to. 
I can begin again. But there's a difference, there's a fundamental difference between the clay and humanity, and that's simply this. We have the capacity to respond, whereas the clay doesn't. And so in that very same passage, the very next verses, God says, if I speak a word of judgment concerning a, pe a person, a people, and they repent of the sin that caused that judgment, I will relent. I will hold back the judgment I was going to speak. Instead, I will bless them. And if I speak a word of blessing concerning the people and they turn away from me and they abandon me, they turn their back on me, I will relent of that blessing and instead speak a word of judgment on them. And what Jeremiah is communicating there, what God's communicating through Jeremiah there in chapter 18, is that prophecies of this sort are always conditional. The prophet's word, had there been repentance on the part of Eli and his sons, God would have relented of the word he spoke. That's his clear teaching throughout Scripture. You see that Nineveh. Jonah goes in, 40 days, y'all are going to be destroyed. They say, what? Let's repent. Perhaps this God will have mercy on us. They repented. God had mercy. Eli, as the high priest of all people, should have understood that's the nature of prophecy. Should have understood that's how God functioned. That the word spoken by the prophet here wasn't just to come in and say, okay, you've done it now, God's going to judge you. God's words of judgment are never simply to say, I'm going to judge you. God's words of judgment are always what? To call to repentance, to call to relationship, to call to connection. God's not this person who's up there, this being who's up there, who's just, oh, they're having fun, they're having fun, they're having fun up there trying to smash every type of joy, every type of fun that, that comes into our life or punish us for sin that's in our life. That's not the God we serve. The God we serve says, oh, they're not in relationship with me the way they should. I'm going to do what I can to bring that relationship with them. I'm going to find a way to connect. Sometimes he connects through outright grace. Sometimes he connects through judgment. But his desire is always to connect, to build that relationship. And Eli doesn't understand that. He doesn't see that. And so he fails to hear God's warning for what it is, an invitation to a renewed relationship. And in your own life, in your own experience, in my experience, I know there have been times when God has, has come in and he's spoken a word of correction to me through a, a, a preacher, through reading his word, through a friend who spoke a word of correction. And there are times I listened, and there are times I didn't. And those times where I didn't, where I failed to heed God's warning, are the times where evil, in a sense, took the throne of my life. And things began to fall apart. Things began to happen that didn't need to happen. Hurt and pain caused by my sinfulness. We need to listen when God warns us. We need to recognize 
wickedness for what it is, and we need to have consequences when that wickedness occurs. So what you have, in fact, here with Eli is what? A man who has developed a hardened heart. That's a biblical description of it. His heart has grown hard to sin. Paul warned about this. That when God's judgment or even God's grace comes and we don't respond with repentance, then that leads to a hardened heart. And when a hardened heart is present, you can't see this. So what are some things that can cause a hardened heart that this passage leads reveals to us? Some things that we need to be mindful of. Some things that perhaps God is, wants to warn us about today in our own lives and in our own experience. I think the first thing that can lead to a hardened heart is we don't take care of our own spiritual health. Eli is overextended. He is both priest and judge. But whatever is going on in his life, he clearly hasn't spent time in God's Word to know the things that we've already pointed out he should have known. He's not spending time connecting with his primary role of priest and his primary role of being a father. For many of us, it's really a question of time in the Word. Studies show that 70% of pastors do not spend time in the Word outside preparation for sermons or Bible study. 70% outside the time that it takes to prepare their message or the Bible study that they're going to teach don't spend any time in the Word for themselves, for their own spiritual health. 55% of regular church attenders, this is not people who call themselves Christian or what, these are people who are regularly in church, don't open their Bible outside of a worship service during Over half of faithful church-going believers don't open their Bibles outside of Sunday morning. How can you expect, how can we expect to stay healthy? That's our diet. If you lived a diet, a physical diet, I'm only going to eat on Sunday morning and never going to eat again until the next Sunday morning. How long are you going to survive like that? And even if you survive, you're not going to be very healthy. You're not going to be what you could be physically. The spiritual world is no different. We must take care of our spiritual health. We must find ways to connect with God in prayer and Bible study to hear from him and to, to speak to him. And I know, I know there are so many things on your plate. There are so many things that pull at, pull at us and draw our attention this way and that. But I also know you make time for what's important to you. That's a given. If something's important to you, you're going to find a way to make time for it. And so the conclusion of that is if we're not spending time in God's Word, it's because it's really not that important to us. 
a second activity that can lead to a failure to engage in weakness is when we don't take note of the slow fade. You hear Eli here basically suggesting, I didn't see it happening. I hear from others. I didn't really pay attention to the drift that was going on with my children or with me. Y'all ever watch that show Hoarders? Okay. It's, a, it's a TV show that's basically about people who hoard things. That is, they, they develop an obsession with keeping everything. Everything. And by the time they're on the TV show, it's scary. Okay. They can't walk through their houses. Okay. They just got stuff just packed, stacked everywhere in their house. It might have a, a, a single path that leads from one room to another. But other than that, they really can't operate. And doctors say, psychiatrists and so forth, who study that phenomenon say that, that begins very slowly. It's not like the person is there. And they're like, oh, I want to keep everything. I'm never going to have. It starts very slowly. And it, it, it's a sickness that, that gradually over time, takes control until it's out of control. You've heard the, the illustration, and I don't know how good of an illustration it is, but the illustration of the, 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 the frog in the, in the kettle. Okay. If you turn on a heat on a kettle, put a frog in it immediately, a frog immediately going to jump out. But if you put the frog in the water in the kettle and you slowly, gradually increase that heat, the frog won't leave until it's boiled. Because its body will adjust to the temperature as you slowly increase it until the temperature is too much. And so often that's what we are like. We take part in the little sins or the little activities, the, the little compromises here and there. And what happens over time is we get used to it, comfortable in it. And as we get comfortable in that sin, then what? We're going to add more to it. And eventually it's going to have control of our lives. And we're going to wonder how we got there. Third, we refuse to take personal responsibility for our sin. It's interesting if you read the prophet's words here. As he speaks his word of judgment, he doesn't really focus on the sins of the son. He focuses on the sins of Eli. And he notes that Eli himself is getting fat off of what his sons are doing. And we're going to see in the, in the stories that follow that, uh, chapter 4 especially, that Eli dies. Why? Because he was so fat. How does the high priest get that fat? By doing exactly what his sons are doing. Through this manipulation of the situation. 
Eli acts shocked when he first addresses his sons, as if he didn't know what was going on. But there's no way he couldn't have known what was going on completely. He himself is benefiting from the extortion that's going on. He himself is benefiting from the table. The text talks about this. But it's his sons in his mind who are at fault, not himself. And one of the things we're going to see throughout, especially the book of Samuel, is failure to take personal responsibility is perhaps the thing that is most an affront to God in his relationship to people. Why does Saul, why does his kingdom fall apart so quickly? Because he could not take personal responsibility for his failures. Every time he's confronted by Samuel, as we'll see, he says, well, the men caused me to do it. Or it seemed like a good idea. Or I was trying to, to do right by you, God. And he never could take responsibility for his sins. And that led to this disintegration of standing. We convince ourselves that we are immune to a fall is another step that can often lead to destruction. Again, Eli taking part in the offerings, 2.29, 4.18, tell us that, that he was taking part in these very offerings. So often we deny the cost or the consequences of sin. We want the benefits but we want to ignore the danger. Why do scams work? Why are con artists successful? Con artists are successful for one simple reason. We all think we're immune to the cost. And we see the benefit, and we see an easy grab or an easy uh, success. That's what they've told us we're going to get. That's what we want, and that's what we believe. We end up cheated. Listen to Tiger Woods' confession. I'm sure most of you are familiar with Tiger Woods' story. Perhaps the greatest golfer of all time. He's at least in the conversation. If you remember, he his world fell apart really in 2010, beginning of 2010. He was in a car accident. He was... Uh, his wife caught him cheating and all those sorts of things. And he was gambling, just doing all sorts of things. This is, this is his comments from the time. He said, I knew my actions were wrong, but I convinced myself that normal rules didn't apply to me. I never thought about who I was hurting. Instead, I thought only about myself. I ran straight through the boundaries that a married couple should live by. I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to. Felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled. And that's our world today. That's us today. That's me today. I feel entitled. Who says I can't have it all? God says you can't have it all. 
don't listen. We convince ourselves that we're different, that we're special, that I can do whatever it is that caused that person to fall, but I'm not going to be. I'm not going to fall like they did. That I'm the person who has the willpower to stand up against this. Ultimately, I'll let it go for a little while because it's fun. But when it's time to stop, I'll stop. What's the famous saying of the alcoholic? I can stop drinking any time. We convince ourselves we're immune. That's exactly where sin wants us. And then we think it's too late to engage the issue. In 2.22 it says, it makes the reference that Eli was was very old. And I have to think that that probably played a role in how he responded to things. He realized he wasn't going to be very around very much longer. His sons, he wanted them in the high priestly role, one of them. So why is there not going to be an accountability? Why is he not going to remove them from the office or the position or the role? Because then who would replace him? Some unknown person and he felt like he was just too old to engage the issue I've waited too long I've let it get a hold of me and it's too late for me one of my most heartbreaking witnessing encounters I think I've shared about it before was with a co-worker of my dad's one summer I worked on drill rigs with my dad. and We would go out to various cities and stay in hotels while we were drilling in that area. And he put me with this man. He was, his name was Bear. I don't think that was his real name, but that's all I ever knew him by. And he looked like a bear. Big burly guy, hair everywhere and all this stuff. And we got to talking about faith and life with Christ and so forth. And I remember sitting there on the bed and this big, huge, early man just in tears. Just in tears over the sin in his life, over where he found himself, over situations that he was in. And telling him, Jesus can make a difference. Jesus can change your very circumstances. He can change who you are. He's a creator of this universe. He can, he can make you a new person and bring about unbelievable joy in life. And through those tears, he looked at me and said, it's just too late for me, Tim. It's just too late for me. And no words I could speak, no, no expressions I could communicate were going to break through that much as I tried that summer. It's not too late. It's not too late. If you're here, if you're breathing, it's not too late. And those of you who are believers and struggling with sin, maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's anger. 
Maybe it's lust, envy. Maybe it's pride. And you think, man, I'm just too old or too far into this to engage it. It's not too late. The question is, what's it going to take for you to acknowledge that now is the time to act? Are you going to keep doing it until you hurt somebody? Will that be the trigger that will finally convince you that it's time to move beyond the sin? Until you break a relationship? Until you damage your standing in the community? What's it going to take for you to realize that God has given you everything you need to deal with temptation, to deal with sin? God is on his throne. God is good, and God's word is true. Calls you today to respond to that in your own life, in your own experience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I thank you. Lord, a message like this today is, is always hard to bring. It's hard to bring because it opens my eyes to my own sin, my own failures. But it's also hard to bring because I love each person in this room. And there's nothing I wouldn't do to, to help them, to encourage them, to bring joy to their life. So it's hard sometimes to speak difficult truths into such situations. God, I pray that it's been you that's been heard more than more than me, more than anything I've said. I pray that it's you that's spoken to their hearts and that they're this morning they're ready to to deal with that sin, to deal with that that temptation, to take personal responsibility. For what's going on or for what not what is not going on. I'm just saying I'm gonna stand for truth, I'm gonna stand for integrity, I'm gonna stand for Christ. Use this time for your purposes. In Christ's name.